0: Hi, I'm Susan Stone, and I beat the often path by being obsessed with change.
1: Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. On this show, we celebrate unique and exciting people and solutions to help us actually solve the problems of our world while at the same time solving our own problem of what is a meaningful career. Joining me today is Susan Stone, the CEO of Ubiquitous Energy Inc., the world leader in transparent solar technology. Their patented tech is the world's first invisible electricity-generating alternative to traditional windows. That's right, not just windows, but theoretically any surface on any building or even any device can soon be generating power. I can't tell you how excited I am for this episode because of what it represents. It's mind-boggling. The company has raised over $75 million in funding to date, and for good reason. The number of windows and surfaces that could potentially be generating power means that this is one of the most exciting tools I've heard of yet to fight climate change in a meaningful way. So here's Susan Stone, the CEO of Ubiquitous Energy. Well, welcome to the show, Susan. I think that based on your history and track record, you can actually say that that's true in your career. You have a wild story. So describe to us a little bit about the career arc. What is the broad strokes changes that you've made in your life to end up where you are now?
0: There's so many. I feel so like many, yeah. I I'm a I feel like sometimes I'm like a circus freak like I just love change and I think it's so powerful for me personally for personal growth um for learning and curiosity. I just absolutely love change and so I mean they're
1: just they're just coins. What's the big deal?
0: They can uh, uh they're pretty useful <laughs> quarters in the laundry. Sorry. The audience money. is like
1: unsubscribe, unsubscribe, unsubscribe. Uh, sorry, everybody. No continue, continue
0: fine no, I just I like I love change I love I love learning. so I what have I changed? I mean, I've changed so many different things in my life. I used to be an investment banker and I left investment banking and moved to Alaska for a summer and then was a ski patroller and then what? went over to venture capital investing and um, and now I'm an operator as a CEO at Ubiquitous Energy. Uh, so I've, yeah, it's a it's a twisty, windy path, and I wouldn't change it for anything.
1: Well, we've had at least five or six people on the show so far who went from finance to ski patrol operator back to investment banking. So you're As part of a long lineage. Of six, obviously not. Um, okay.
0: No, Ross, we do have a conference. Yeah.
1: We all together. That's right. There's a conference together. That's actually it's that conference. That's how I found you. I was uh, I've gone through everybody else at this point. Uh, no, but obviously. There's a common myth or there seems to be a common myth pervasive in our society that most people who achieve success or any measure of fulfillment, that they had a linear path, a straightforward path. They went from A to B. They knew what they wanted to do from the lemonade stand when they were five years old to now. They were always born to be an entrepreneur. They're always born to be a CEO. Clearly, we have seen that that is not the case. So how would you say that you have ended up making those pivotal decisions that led you to where you are right now?
0: Gosh, a lot of serendipity. I mean, first of all, I don't really know very many people that have that linear path. I feel like that linear path might be a myth, or at least a really small subset of people. Um, And I'm really nonlinear, not just in my path, but just the way I think and and kind of like the way I like to live my life is pretty nonlinear. But really, a lot of serendipity and seeing open doors and walking through them, I think is is what drove my, you know, bizarre and nonlinear path. Um, I think it's a combination of being ready to jump on opportunities and, and not being afraid to take the risk to jump on a new opportunity, along with, um, you know, also being able to let go. And I think that might be the hardest part. Uh, and I think, you know, I'll, I'll go to my most recent career pivot, which was, um Almost exactly three years ago today, I took on the CEO role at Ubiquitous Energy, and I said no, uh, gosh, three or four months before I said yes. Uh, and part of it was almost a mourning process for the path that I thought I was going to be on, the path that I thought I wanted to be on. And I, I had been... Um, the general partner, of man managing partner of my own VC fund, uh, really small. It was a teeny tiny VC fund. I had just brought on a partner uh, who's amazing and is uh, one of my closest friends still today. And so we were gearing up and getting ready to raise fund too. And I had this dream of of building a venture capital fund platform, and that I think, you know, married with, gosh, going to do something new, and you know, was I going to be successful? The fear of letting people down. Um, you know, that did hold me back for, for a couple of months. Uh, but I was able to let that path go. And and now I look back at it and think, oh, my gosh, thank God I, uh, I made this decision. I really just absolutely adore what I'm doing and wouldn't change it.
1: Well, that's fantastic. And it's no secret that fear in many different forms is probably what's holding almost anybody back from the next step or the proverbial next step in their career or their life. And it It takes many different shapes and it comes in many different sizes. So being, I guess, why were you fearful at that time of what seems like a relatively logical choice from the outside, especially as experienced as you are in the business world and with so much background? What was it about that decision that scared you?
0: Oh my gosh, I feel like you're being kind with uh, saying it was an obvious decision. That was part of my fear, was that I felt so non-obvious.
1: Well, I guess what, I, what I'm what i trying to say is that when you see these things, they're presented as an opportunity. Like, let's say, for example, that CBS called me up and they said, hey, do you want to replace Stephen Colbert as the next host of The Late Show? Everybody on the outside would be like, that's obvious. Go, go, go. But on the inside, I might be freaking out about something like that. So these things seem logical. It's just a step. It's a good thing. But... Inside, you have a very different feeling about what that might represent. So, what were the thoughts going through your head then?
0: Yeah, um, I mean, feel a fear of failure is a big one. I think that's just kind of like an overarching umbrella. Just the what if? What if I'm not good at this? Uh, mm-hmm. And and I'm responsible. I mean, this is a big job. I'm responsible for our team. I'm responsible for what I think is a transformational technology that, I mean, our, our products are in position to have a real impact on carbon emissions and yeah. that's heavy. Uh, and so, I mean, look, I'm a first time operator and, and I really mean that like I'm a first time operator. I've, my path before was I was an investment banker, not an operator. I was an advisor. I was an investor, which, you know, you kind of like moonlight as an advisor, but I'd never actually done it. Uh, and so, you know, getting in and, and so I, I had no idea if I actually could and how, how good I would be at it. Um, so that fear of failure was a really big one. Um, and then I really had an a intense fear of loss of autonomy.
1: Uh, mm-hmm.
0: And I, I was kind of living this VC lifestyle where I dictated my schedule and how I wanted to spend my time. And, you know, that went immediately to there are a there's an entire team of people who. I'm responsible for and responsible to and who I need I need to respect that and be available and uh, engaged. and And so that loss of autonomy was also, I think, a big one for me. I think those are the two big factors.
1: That makes sense. So being on the other side of the table for so long, you must have interviewed many founders or potential people when you were considering which companies that you wanted to invest in. So had do you think that that fear was also from noticing a lot of the position of other founders or perhaps CEOs that you interfaced with on the other side, on the investment side, because maybe you thought about them differently on the other side of the table than when you, it came time to this is something I'm actually going to be?
0: No. Good theory, though. Um, okay. It was all actually right. the opposite for me. Okay. Uh, I, that was one of the things, all of those interactions with... Folks in my portfolio, and, I, and I'll back up and, and, and tell you a little bit why that is. Uh, but but those interactions and the time I'd spent with other entrepreneurs, um, that's what gave me the confidence to to really take the leap. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know the part when I said I would back up is that my my investment strategy when I ran my fund um, and and that I learned from the family office that I was working for was to be a really engaged and involved investor, and so that meant making fewer. Um, Bigger bets and and really spending time with those companies versus uh, you know what I think of as more you know portfolio roulette theory where you place a bunch of bets and um, one of them is going to pop uh, and so I really had and same thing as an investment banker by the way I did a lot of sell side work where you get uh, very involved with the management teams you learn a lot about the business uh, and you really get to be part of the interface between acquirers or investors and those entrepreneurs. So I got to see a lot of different aspects of businesses, things that were working and weren't working. Um, I was lucky enough, and I still do sit on the board of directors for a couple of startups. And so I, I continue to learn a ton from those experiences. Uh, so for me, that that's my support group. I mean, my my CEOs of the portfolio companies that I invested in are some of my closest friends and, uh, and confidants and, and the people that I learn from. So it, uh, it was like a little built in uh, cheat sheet to have cool. been a visa.
1: So did you consult them or was it just more moral strength when you were in that limbo period? Did you actually both. ask people? Both, yeah. Okay. Oh, no,
0: I asked people. Yeah. Oh, I definitely, sure. I went around and, and asked for advice. Um, you know, personal and professional, as I've divided up. You know, I talked to people who uh, knew renewable energy and and kind of knew about ubiquitous energy, and I wanted to get uh, outside views on kind of likelihood of success. Um, you know, kind of what what are people not telling me? What do I what am I missing here? Um, and I'll I'll name check one of my friends, Jim McDermott, was was really influential here. He's been a longtime renewable. In, uh, energy investor and you know kind of pretty well known within climate tech uh, and he's just terrific and, and a really brilliant guy and he was uh, he was a really important voice in that discussion and and kind of in my mental program there as I figured it out um, and then on the personal side yeah the the fear of what does it mean for this to take over my life um, I spent a lot of time with uh, Gina Bianchini who's the CEO of Mighty Networks. company in my portfolio. And I'm I'm also lucky enough to sit on the mighty board to this day. Uh, And she can tell you there were tears for sure uh, Mm. as I was working through this. Um, But that's what it takes is just calling on your network and and calling on the people that you care about and care about you to, to help support your decision making.
1: That's so awesome. To what degree? Because we can talk a little bit about the product, and from the outside, it's it's absolutely brilliant. Because when I think of the future, there's two different versions of what the future can be. There's sort of a positive future, and there's a negative future. I've always been fascinated with both. Whether the dystopian side is Blade Runner, you know how the world can look bad, or even The Fifth Element, hundred million, hundred billion Americans, he says, and that, my some one hundred billion of my fellow Americans, and uh, or even Idiocracy. And there's a positive vision of what we imagine the future could be, uh, where nature and technology are in harmony, and it's green, and we've got all these clean energy sources. And when you think about something as simple as transparent solar panels or windows that could be harvesting the solar energy, stuff like that feels so, so, so logical as an evolution for humanity in general on the positive side of what our future could be. Were there many different people that were doing this kind of tech before ubiquitous energy? are there many competitors in the space or is it truly original? And a corollary is, was it the vision of a future that helped you make that decision to actually take the leap and do this?
0: Yes, absolutely. And I'll tell you, I'm a huge sci-fi fan, so I'm with you, I like, I can dive into the dystopian world. I love
1: it, I know, right? It could be horrible.
0: (laughs) I love that stuff. Um, And I wake up, sometimes I wake up and I'm like, are we living in one of these dystopian futures? No, probably not yet
1: close yeah. getting yeah. there yeah
0: getting there um but hopefully we'll reverse the course here uh yeah i i mean look i'm not a founder at ubiquitous um but i have i was an early investor and i spend a lot of time with our founders uh and really the this idea of transparent solar of you know really invisible solar which that's what we do um it it, it came about because yeah, these guys were trying to think about how to how to change the world and, and how to evolve solar technology to a point where it could be more widely deployed. And so this was a novel concept at the time. Um, the, the company was founded in 2011, you know, kind of at the moment of the invention at MIT. And the real uh, underlying thought process was, why is solar not more widely deployed? What could be some of the blockers? Why isn't it everywhere? Right. Because the planet's getting just like bombarded with photons all day, every day. So why, yeah, why we could plan if we, if we had solar everywhere, we could power the planet, no problem. So why are we not doing that? And uh, they came to the consensus that it's because it's, it's, it's ugly or a very specific design look, let's say. Right. Right. Um, (laughs) And so that it was just that jumping-off point. I, I, you know, nobody, uh, to our knowledge, had really in the past thought about trying to to engineer molecules that selectively harvested in the infrared and near infrared spectrum, where a substantial portion of the power of sun, sunlight is. And so, once they removed that constraint of harvest every photon, harvest every photron, um, they were able to invent these materials or use ex- existing materials to demonstrate that you could really make a transparent solar cell. And so from that launching off point, um, you know, that's our patented technology, our underlying patent is that concept of harvesting in the infrared and near infrared selectively. And from there, our team has developed our own proprietary materials, our own proprietary device architectures. It is a really interesting discovery process because we have to invent, we do invent our own molecules to be able to accomplish this. Um, So to answer your question of of who else is doing this and who had been doing it before, um, there were folks that were trying to do built-in solar before. Um, That that was well-treaded. I mean, that kind of gives you a sense for how excited building owners and developers get about being able to have truly integrated on-site generation where it is indistinguishable from the rest of the building and you don't have to make design compromises. Um, but no one had yet kind of released that design constraint of harvest as much as you can and focus on the infrared and near-infrared. So yeah, we're a completely novel concept. Um, there are of course folks trying to do it today um, and you know kind of trying to catch up to, to where we are and what we're doing. Um, and and look, I think that just really gives you a sense for how exciting this concept is, and and how transformational it really can be for our infrastructure if we allow solar generation from you know any surface that sees the sun uh, it, without any aesthetic trade trade-off. I mean, that's that's exciting. A lot of people want to do this. Um, I think, and I, I promise, I'm gonna just stop in a second and and, and, and take a breath. Um, but the thing that I think is really critical to our path that I, you know, I, I think is going to be a challenge for some of the up and comers beyond our IP portfolio um, is that we've focused a lot on working with industry to make sure that our product is manufacturable at scale. That is the key. God, I mean, the product's got to be great, right? Like we ha- can't have design or aesthetic trade offs. We can't have performance trade offs. But even if you solve those problems, if you can't manufacture it at scale, you're just not going to make an impact. And so um, while it makes our discovery process more challenging because we have a very, very tight set of gates that we make sure every material passes through and its manufacturability is a big one there uh, before it matures into one of our production formulations. um, That, I think, is the absolute key to unlocking this market is manufacturability.
1: Well, it's all incredible. And anybody who's been paying any attention to solar panels in general knows that one of the common criticisms is that the typical unit that's displayed is a single family home. And we know that traditional solar panels are a very great solution for single family homes because you can put it on your roof and it'll, roughly speaking, power all of your energy needs. But then the next aha, gotcha statement is almost always, oh yeah, but what about apartment buildings where there's only one roof and there's multiple dwellings? And That's been a common issue to take into account, especially very tall apartment buildings or high-rise skyscrapers or these other buildings that may have a very small surface area on the roof itself. Is it feasible with this technology, let's say there's a high-rise apartment building that each floor can generate via the window technology or the surface technology enough power for that floor all the way up and down uh, an entire building?
0: Uh, not yet. I mean, I, I someday, once we have our technology matured toward, you know, closer to what we believe to be our, our uh, practical targets, I think we have a path to being able to mature our efficiency to the point where it's roughly as efficient as silicon panels are today. Um, we're still new at this. So, you know, we're about 20 percent the efficiency of silicon panels. Um, and so, yes, we will get there. Today, we're about, uh, rough depending on the building, about a 10 to 30 percent offset for the building's energy needs. Um, and that's, you know, that's assuming a, a really conventional building, so not a building that's, you know, particularly optimized for energy efficiency. On the other hand, inside of the equation, um, you know, we're all working really hard to electrify as many buildings as we can. So. You know, a little bit of a a push and pull and a balancing act there, Uh, but you know, ten to thirty percent of uh, a building's energy needs is is really an enormous offset um, and is a very useful amount of power. Absolutely. Particularly in situations like you mentioned, where there's not rooftop space and there's just not um, not a potential for other renewables.
1: Do you see certain buildings as a great candidate for this? Just thinking off the top of my head, the Louvre comes to mind, a giant pyramid made of glass. Are there certain structures that you look at that you think, oh, that would be a great candidate for this technology better than others that might just have a few windows scattered in a brick wall? (laughs)
0: <laughs> I'm a little bit of a glass nerd these days. So I look right. at pretty much every building and dream about it, generating electricity. Right. I, I mean, look, the more glass, the better. That's probably obvious. Uh, for, for us, for our, I mean, that's, that's, that's the real answer, right? The more glass, the better. Um, for us, as we move into production right now, we're in, and, and I'll you know I'll give you a sense for where we are. We're, We're in pilot production today. We have a pilot production facility in Redwood City that we use primarily for R&D and process development. And we're raising capital right now to build our first factory. Our first factory will be high volume. It'll allow us to do floor-to-ceiling glass. So that's what unlocks, you know, the big glass skyscrapers. Um, And we have had this beautiful uh, revolution, I think, here in the U.S. with the Inflation Reduction Act uh, that gives really, really juicy incentives to building owners and to residential customers for employing renewables within their building envelope. And that has opened up this space to us of, we are so cost competitive to traditional glass with those incentives that now building owners who didn't build with a lot of glass are actually considering adding glass to their, some of their buildings. Uh, so, yeah, Six months ago, I would have told you, yeah, the more glass, the better. And that's the target. And now, you know, we're actually being able to to move the needle on how much glazing goes into a building. And that's just incredibly exciting because I love windows. I love daylighting. I, you know, I like right. to, be able to see
1: when we compare the past and the present or the, an ideal future, more daylight, more lighting in general is one of those hallmarks of what we think to be a more modern or futuristic and going back to even Blade Runner, there's that scene. I don't know if you remember the original Blade Runner, but there's that scene where the head of the corporate, the Tyrell Corporation, he has that indoor sanctuary where he's administ- where he's basically proving that one of his replicants can pass the test of, of being a human. And he's got that giant window. I don't know if you remember this, a huge window. You can see the outside. And he flips a little button, and the whole thing dims just from the window itself. It blocks the sun because it's. Sunset time. Ever since you know I saw something that like that, you know I, you can, I have I mean, seen you know. that technology. Yeah. <laughs> the very no. nicest houses in Malibu. <laughs> yeah.
0: We don't do it, um, but yeah, there there are folks that can do that today. That that self dimming uh, glass, which I think is very cool.
1: And now it's also generating energy at the same time, which is well, ours. Is, yeah, right, or it could be. Is yeah. there a limit to how big one of these pieces of glass can theoretically be? Could it be 30 feet by 20 feet, or does, does it have to be broken down into smaller chunks? Oh no, no. Um,
0: It's right now we're limited by our tool set. Um, and that's just the reality of you know, the bigger the tool, the more expensive it is, and the more expensive it is to run. So uh, when I said the factory will make floor to ceiling glass, so that's you know five foot by 10 foot, that's a pretty big piece of glass. Yeah. Um, the the industry today uh, makes glass about two x that size um, available to the market. That's a relatively small piece of the market, but you know, call it twenty ten by twenty um, ish. Our technology doesn't care. I mean, that's the mo- I think that's the most exciting thing is that not only does does it not care how large the surface is, um, we. We have uh, engineered it so that we don't have transmission losses over a large surface area. So it is, uh, you know, almost infinitely scalable at at different sizes. It also doesn't care what we coat. So we're going to market for architectural glass because we can make such a big impact. It's such a big market. I mean, there are 20 billion square feet of window glass installed around the world every year. Wow! That's around the globe. I'm going to throw a few numbers at you, but that's around the globe a hundred times. Yeah. Um, and boy, are we accelerating our building? I mean, building stock is supposed to double by 2060 and that means, okay, wait for it. That means if we, that means we're adding the equivalent of a New York city to the planet every month until 2060. So, <laughs> right. And buildings are <laughs> we produce a ton of carbon emissions. So yeah, yeah we, we have got to do, um, Absolutely everything that we can. Um, So, but to go back to what we don't have to, we don't have to coat glass. Um, So our materials are the fundamental technology and they don't care. So now you can imagine other surfaces. Um, Coat a flexible substrate uh, that you can see through and lay it over your roof so that you don't have to compromise roofing aesthetics. Uh, Wrap your car so that your car can harvest sunlight. Put it into the display stack of your iPhone or coat the back of your iPhone so that you can use it for emergency power. I mean, we can actually make a a real impact on being able to get an emergency signal out by putting your phone in the sunshine. Uh, So I, yeah, I get excited about all those future applications as well.
1: That's incredible. And It's funny because I can't remember when, 15, 20 years ago, a thought came through my mind before I was as educated as I am today from talking to brilliant people such as yourself, but the thought came to my mind that there's energy all around us because we're a giant ball, we're spinning, we're hurtling through the universe at incredible speed, there's a the sun, and I was reading articles on Wikipedia about, hum- about species energy consumption, and you get to those types of civilizations. Type 1 civilization is one that can harvest all of the energy of their planet, and then Type 2 is a civilization that can harvest all of the energy of their nearby star, and Type 3 is one that can harvest energy from their entire galaxy... And then you learn about these things like a Dyson sphere, a theoretical structure that could encapsulate the entire sun and just harvest all of the solar energy. And I had this sense that there's just so much energy that... I, the thought that I had was I don't imagine how energy itself could be something that would ever be in short supply for our species. It just seems like there's too much. Now, other things for sure, water and uh, certain minerals and resources, that I can easily imagine. But I always kind of intuitively felt that energy wasn't going to be a long-term human problem do you feel that that is the case i know that storage is a problem but
0: and storage is a problem we're starting to solve right i yeah i i could not agree with you more um and we we do we have a, an infinite renewable i mean infinite to my mind you know i guess there is some point down the road where in
1: will die right? Yeah.
0: Me, like infinity. We'll um, but
1: we'll, we'll have more power up yeah. until that very second because the sun is expanding. Yeah. So it's not going to go down until it kills no. us. It's going to go up. Exactly,
0: going to go up until it kills us.
1: <laughs> um, no,
0: I, I feel exactly the same way, and and that's that what's that is what makes me hopeful and excited. And I think we look. We live in societies. We get entrenched in patterns. We have a, an entire planet of infrastructure that relies on fossil fuels, and you know the idea that we are going to switch away from fossil fuels tomorrow is nonsensical. It is not going to happen. It is. It just isn't. Um, and so I, we're on the path to transitioning 100% to clean renewable energy. I mean, we have wind, we have geothermal, we have solar, and we really, if we can get solar widely deployed, you're right, that's all we need. The sun is just giving us energy all the time, right? Just um, donating it to us essentially. Uh, so I'm, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more and i, I we're on that path. You know, I, I'm absolutely confident we're on that path. And you mentioned storage, which is the key to unlocking that. Mm. storage keeps getting better and better and better and you know folks if you, you use that residential example that uh, that you gave of of course you know you should put solar panels on your down your roof it just makes such intuitive sense in a residential setting for me it didn't really make sense in a residential setting until storage caught up because i love the idea we we have solar at our house we have two tesla power walls and i just love the idea of the house being it's it's self-sustained
1: a self-contained uh, you know, unit it's the coolest thing community. in the world right it's
0: cool yeah
1: that's going to be one of the greatest joys of our time i think i think i mean for that. me it
0: is how many times yeah. do you think i check the tesla app a day to see how my production's looking right to use and now i'm one of those people that like i run around unplugging the vampires because i want to see it's like a little you know, what's my personal best low on how much electricity we've used relative to how much we've generated that day?
1: Are there some surprising ones, not to get off on too much of a tangent, but are there some surprising energy vampires that you notice that you might not have realized? I mean, we know that refrigerators, air conditioners we know the big. Uh,
0: I mean, I don't know if these are surprising, but I think like uh, monitors, TVs, computers, things that have standby mode like that, gaming consoles, um, and some of those gaming consoles are better than others. But I think I always knew that they were vampires. Things with standby mode. But the I don't think I really realized the order of magnitude until wow. I mm. did things like... I mean, I used to be one of those people that I would just leave my laptop, which I, I'm on today. I use my laptop, just kind of plugged in um, yeah. because it was sitting on my desk. And now I'm I unplug it.
1: Okay. Well, laptop is a big your, energy vampire.
0: It is a big okay. energy vampire. Once you get That's your... Once you get your solar and uh, Tesla Powerballs, you'll be the same
1: as me. I know. It's the dream. It's the dream. I've got e-bikes. And I was having a giant argument with somebody about this because we, we know the limitations of lithium-ion technology, and we know that those batteries don't scale, especially when you get to gigawatts and city-level scaling. It just doesn't work. And we know that rare earth ma- materials are going to be hard to come by. And So I was having an argument with somebody about whether Tesla just being an example that everybody knows of this technology was a step forward or not. And even though we all have mixed feelings perhaps about Elon Musk himself, we'll not go into that too much. uh, I I argued that it is a step forward because even with that existing technology, it's easy to imagine that because of that technology, one day when the battery technology changes, it's just as simple as swapping the battery out for something else. So should we find a new thing that is not lithium ion that does just the same, We can just plug that into an infrastructure that's going to work because we took all those steps to get there. Whereas, if we never did a Tesla car at all, imperfect though it may be, an internal combustion engine will not go straight to whatever that new battery tech would be. So, it seems to me that that is also a problem that will be solved, even though it's not solved yet. You think that's? I
0: wholeheartedly agree. Yeah, yeah. I wholeheartedly agree. And I think that's part of that. I mean, it's all the same thread. I mean, that energy transition it's a transition. And, um, I, I will tell you, I get personally frustrated when I, I'm not usually talking to people. It's usually reading an article because I think these opinions tend to hide behind word, like a written, the written word, um, you know some new technology will come out or or you know people are bashing tesla because well lithium-ion batteries are bad and you know we're mining nasties and they're hard to dispose of and you know the the complaint of the day or you know even for silicon conventional panels i mean they yes they're they're difficult to recycle that's that's a given um Mm. but that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it and i think these you know kind of the i think of them as these purity tests if if everything has to pass a purity test that it is Absolutely, you know, clean and um, you know, completely decarbonized throughout the entire supply chain. We're never going to get there, and so I think we need to be really practical and realistic about what works, what will be adoptable. I mean, that's the thing I love about Tesla. To your, you know, to your point, we would not be here where we are today with every major manu- auto manufacturer um, producing EVs without Tesla. Like I, I believe that. with 100%. I I believe that
1: too. Yeah. They made it popular. They made it sexy. They made it attractive to the casual consumer.
0: And they made it affordable.
1: Made it affordable. Yeah. So... Since you're in this space, and one of the premises behind me starting the show was to seek out stories of people that were doing things that I admired. In a world full of people that are doing things that we may not like or we may disagree with, I wanted to seek out people who are actually solving these problems instead of just complaining about them. So there's sort of two sides to this spectrum here. On the one hand, you have people like Greta Thunberg, who is just saying, you know, we need to stop society right now. We have reached a dire, catastrophic point in time. The only thing is activism. There's, uh, greenwashing is one of the worst problems. And there are people who are treating this as an absolute emergency. We need to shut down the government. No new oil, no new nothing. And then there, are of course, a middle area of people who just aren't concerned at all with any of these topics who aren't even interested in them. But then there's this other group of people who are doing kind of what you're doing, which is trying to create a company or trying to build these changes in a more, I say insidious, but in in a positive sense, in in a way of a surreptitious way of injecting these things into society via companies and via uh, eco capitalism or whatever you want to call it, who are saying we need to build these things in a way that works within the infrastructure of our society as it is currently set up. Do you believe that that more positive path can work? Or do we need both that and the fear side? Are they incompatible with each other?
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think, I hope that we get to a point really soon where we don't need the fear side as much. Um, I do think, and I guess I'll, I'll challenge one of your original premises was that we got these, sure. you know, big group of people in the middle who don't care. I'm not sure that's true. I think that group of people who don't care is actually pretty small. Um, But I think it has just an interesting complexion of people who care but don't know what to do, care but feel helpless, um, care but don't know how to name it. Uh, And so instead, it feels like you know, fear of their home flooding or, you know, if you live in California like you and me, fear of wildfires and earthquakes <laughs> and smoke and, you know, drought, our, our stuff, um, our demons. Um, so I, I do think that there is a, a much bigger portion of the population who really does care and wanna wants to take action here if it's available to them. I think sometimes the fear side can you know, push those folks into inaction or, you know, into that hopelessness. So while I think it's really useful for calling attention to the problem and the urgency, um, I do think it, you know, it it kind of has a, a, can have a negative side effect. So I'm hopeful that we can move beyond that soon and just, you know, acknowledge that this is a problem that we're collectively working to solve. And so that's where, that's where I want to focus is, on solutions. I'm I'm a, like kind of an eternal optimist. And so I see a problem and, you know, I want to name it, right? Because unless you have a problem statement, you have no idea what you're going and trying to solve. But, you know, let's quickly get to a problem statement and then let's start working on solutions. And this, the only way we're going to do this is if we have collective action. So for me and for our team at Ubiquitous Energy, that means don't ask people for radical change we don't ask our supply chain or value chain for radical change you know our I'll, I'll use our partners at anderson as an example um anderson corporation they're america's a premier window brand they're an investor in ubiquitous uh, we're developing product together for the residential market and um one of the things that we did that i think you know really helped them get comfortable with us as a new technology is we use the same product construction. We use the same manufacturing equipment as their existing suppliers. Um, we're integrated into what's already an existing standard window coding. So they know exactly where we go on the glass. They understand where, kind of where we belong within the product stack. Uh, and, and so those things, they were intentional and that goes all the way through the customer, right? Like our windows, they have to look like windows. We don't want to ask people, yeah, you can help us save the planet by, you know, generating renewable energy by your windows. The only thing is you're going to have to give up like 50 percent of your like they're going to be really tinted or they're going to be colored or, you right. know, they're going to have silicon in them. You just have to like look past them at, at right. the view. That's yes. not going to fly. Uh, and so, I mean, just like Tesla made a, that, a beautiful vehicle that's a really useful vehicle that everyone wants to drive. That's how I see solving this problem is, you know, let's take advantage of all this embedded infrastructure and our embedded behaviors and and just improve upon these things. So it's like a, a it is transformational and revolutionary. Um, but I don't know if I would use your insidious word again, because it ha- like it has, these no, it has such a negative. I know. <laughs> I, was, I knew we
1: were going to circle back to that. I was thinking. No, oh, no, you're right. Uh, it's
0: kind of sweet. it's like feeding the kid like, you know, when they, they bake the brownies that have um you like vegetables in them to give to kids. It, so yes, like, that's
1: what I'm talking about. Right? It's it's sneaky, but in the best at? possible sense, a Trojan horse or um, whatever you want to call, or a, a hook, or <laughs> it's the yeah. clickbait of the <laughs> eco world. Yeah. You got to get them in somehow. <laughs> and and I think you brought up an excellent point. And you know when we talk about the common person, which is always a dangerous thing to do, it doesn't exist, but. You mentioned that, okay, climate change is an abstract thing. Global warming is an abstract thing. Well, tell that to the people who in Fort Myers whose house just flooded. They know that that sucks. They know that your house being flooded is awful and all of the hassle that you have to deal with that. So on the one hand, you say, hey, we should adopt solar technology. Yeah, who cares? We're not asking for – we don't want radical change, to your point. But – Another thing that I've heard, and again, especially in California, but also all over the world, and especially with the Ukraine, Russia, and the gas crisis that's sort of brewing in Europe, is people are looking at their electricity bill here. It's like, oh my God, $900 utility bill? What? And they know that that's expensive. And they say, I can't afford to send my kid to daycare because my utility bill is so high. And that $900 is coincidentally exactly the price of what daycare would be, more or less. So if you can say to these people well solar panels will offset that so therefore your utility bill could be zero and I've talked to people who are who have, are making tech that you can harvest water from the air it's conceivable that your utility grid bill could be zero. Your water is covered personally within your home unit, and so is all of your power. So you say you're saving the money, and I think along those lines, hey, you could install these windows or these surfaces, and that's going to reduce the costs coming out of your pocket. That seems to me to be a very, let's let's say, catchy idea that almost anybody can relate to. Or the next iPhone, like you said, is coated in the substance so that the battery lasts 30% longer by virtue of it just being in the sun or emergency power. Any Who would say no to tech like that? If Apple put that out there, people would say, great, that's awesome. I doubt that yeah. anybody would complain about that. So for me, this world seems to be the more exciting headspace to live in, that world of possibility and versus the doom and gloom that that I, if I'm being very honest, I was in much more of that headspace a couple of years ago before I started this podcast and talked to people like you.
0: Well, first of all, thank you for for saying that. I'm I'm happy to be a part of you know helping you shift your thinking, um, and I hope a lot of us shift that thinking. I mean, this is a really solvable problem. Um, it's, uh, I work with an executive coach and I cannot recommend coaching enough. I'll just, you know, give that little plug. Uh, he, he's fantastic and works with our whole organization. And I just think, you know, people who are working on problems, um, all over the world, you know, we deserve coaches, uh, to help us be our best selves. Uh, he likes to use this phrase that it's simple, but not easy. And I think that is, is really, uh, how I see this, this climate change problem. It is, it is in some ways very simple to your point about, The fact that we have this like endless source of renewable energy in the sun, Um, but it is not easy. It's not easy to change things that we've been doing for a really long time. It isn't easy to develop products that, you know, can be mass produced and can be scaled and, uh, and sold around the world um, to really make that impact. And, you know, we, there is urgency. So to go back to that fear thing, um, you know, that helps us with the urgency. Um, but, It's going to take time. And I think that's uh, I think that is part of the challenge as well, is that we certainly as an American society, I think this is, you know, through Western society, I think this is pervasive is that we have a, um, you know, we can be short term thinkers and and sometimes for good reasons, to your point about, you know, not being able to pay for child care, you know, if it's child care or heat your house or. Food or heat your house. I mean, those are some that's intense. Uh, and and i I think it is not fair for us to ask people to make those kinds of trade-offs. Uh, and at the same time, you know, we need to be installing renewable energy today in Europe so that ten years from now, and Bill Gates said this uh, you know, a few weeks ago on a podcast so that ten years from now, you know, there is not even a thought of reliance on Russian natural gas or natural gas at all. And you know, I think having those being able to balance those two perspectives and serve both, um, I think, is really, really challenging. And I think it's challenging for government because that's really where a lot of this change has to be has to be born is, is at the government level.
1: I completely agree. Completely agree. So you've been at this for three years with this new venture, at least directly. What mm-hmm. are some of the personal challenges that you have faced in that time? Have there been really difficult moments so far?
0: There have, um, and I'm, I'm lucky enough. I'm lucky enough that they've been balanced with some, you know, incredible moments as well. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I, I think. I mean, look, we're a we are a startup funded by venture capital, and so that means we we live and die uh, by the investors who are willing to back us, uh, and so. For me as the CEO, uh, you know, my my main job is to keep gas in the tank and keep us keep our momentum and keep us going. And um, that can be incredibly stressful. Uh, and so the, I would say those have been my my darkest moments um, were, you know, not necessarily you know getting no's from investors. Those those usually come with useful feedback. And I love just like I love change. I love useful feedback because uh, I love trying to get better, um, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that keeps me up at night. Is can I keep enough gas in this tank? Can I keep our momentum going? Um, how quickly can we go? Uh, those things uh, certainly weigh on me. And I'll tell you, even even today, and I, I actually had a session with my coach right before I'm talking to you. Cool. Uh, I I'm I'm drained. I'm wiped out. I I've had an intense couple of weeks, and I haven't had.
1: It is a Friday um, as well. <laughs> when we're Friday. taping this, at least, so, yeah.
0: Like, endless, like you know, like three week week. Um, and I uh, I try really hard to build recovery cycles in for myself, uh, and I have been unable to do that. It's partly because of time constraints, and partly because I prioritized other things and not my own recovery. And so, um, you know, on a very personal level, that can be really hard. Uh, and so. I'm, uh, I'm hoping to get to recharge a little bit this yeah. weekend.
1: I hope so, too. Well, you mentioned, of course, earlier that one of your initial fears of taking the plunge of this was that you would no longer be in control of your own time in the way that you were. And obviously going from a private owner of, of your company to uh, somebody who is beholden to venture capital and all of the demands that that can put on anybody. Um, It seems to me like that fear was probably justified and real. However, you also said, I mean, that fear was not (laughs) unfounded, right. right? It was an accurate assessment of what was going to happen. So knowing that that has happened and knowing that this is, in fact, a consequence of that very decision, you also said that it's something that you have no regret and it turned out to be an incredible thing for you. So how do you feel now? Why was it incredible, even though it might be more stress and more pressure and more physical time spent than you might have otherwise?
0: Yeah, I mean, wow. I'm a, I am would tell you I'm a different person today than I was three years ago when I started this job. And that's because I've learned so much and I continue to learn so much. And... That's what feeds me. I mean, it really is. When I really just strip everything away and examine like myself and what energizes me, it is. It's learning. I'm just an incredibly curious person, and I I, I love to learn. And so, the experience that I've had so far at Ubiquitous Energy, learning is, has been so intense and wonderful. Um, that that is something that is probably the core of what I wouldn't change. Um, I also I, I absolutely love working with our team. Um, I, I work most closely with our executive leadership team, and including our, our one of our founders, Miles Barr, is our CTO, and he is just an, an incredible human being. Um, he is a wonderful person to work with, and I've been truly lucky to call him my business partner. Uh, so I am really also energized by the time I get to spend with our team. And then on the, you know, kind of how do I mitigate what you said, which is like, you know, I really did lose control of my schedule and I have a lot less time available. Um, I have the most incredible and supportive partner in my husband. We're a really good team. And and that was one of the things I was afraid of too, was, you know, what's going to happen to my relationship, to my marriage, when I go from being, you know, more or less available to being not that available. And <laughs> what is sure. that going to mean for us? Yeah. Uh, and it's, uh, I mean, we've had some, Tough times, not, you know, not tearing at the fabric of our relationship, but just t- tough times when we're like, wow, we haven't really seen each other that much in the last month. Uh, and so, uh, that is a place where I think without his support, uh, I think that would be, you know, really challenged to, to be able to do this.
1: So cool. To what degree are the physical challenges tempered by the fact or the knowledge that you're working on a truly global problem?
0: Very much so. I, I, I think it would be, if I was doing this job to make money. I think it, I would have you know burned out and been gone by now. Um, I, I just and you know that's partly how I'm wired. My reward system is you know money's great. Like we all, it's helpful. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's definitely a nice thing to have. Um, right. But that's not why why I get up and do it every day. Um, it it really is this i I am amazed by the impact that we can have. and i'm I mean, I'm still amazed by our technology. I mean, i I met this company and this founding team in two thousand and fourteen. So or actually I've met them in two thousand and thirteen almost at the end of two thousand and thirteen, so you know nine years ago. and, it still feels like magic. Like I really do wake up every day and I'm like, how do we do this? It's magic. Yeah. I, sure. I'm going to butcher that quote from um, Sincere Sci-Fi Nerd from Arthur C. Clarke uh, that any sufficiently developed technology is um, indistinguishable from magic. And you got it. I don't think but, you butchered it. <laughs> we'll see. We can Google it later and see if I got it right. Um, I, but you I got at least
1: 90% right I, and maybe all.
0: <laughs> you recognized at least I of got course. it right. No, no,
1: I think you're mostly right, if not all.
0: And that's, yeah, yeah, that's how I feel about technology. I really do. Like, I how do you do it? M- magic. It feels like magic. I mean, we invent molecules. How is that not magic?
1: It, it absolutely is. And that is the power and the allure of tech in general, is that we have the ability to radically change what the future looks like in ways that we can't even conceive of today. That is the allure of working on these kinds of things, is that we don't know what we don't know. And through that process of discovery, we may unlock something that is truly, truly incredible that will change all of our society in ways that we can't comprehend, sometimes for good and sometimes for bad, obviously. And that goes back to the 50-50 potential future scenario idea. But still, the allure of being able to solve these massive problems in a way that nobody ever thought of before, that is reason enough to get out of bed. And that's the kind of thinking, again, that deeply inspires. I'll never get tired of that. I know that. I'll never get tired of exploring those kinds of ideas because it's just too cool.
0: I agree, um, I agree with you. And I'll tell you like, I think your job is so fun in part because when I think about what are the things I gave up when I left Venture Capital, one of them was getting to, I mean, I I from time to time I get to do things like I went to a conference this week and and you know got to meet so many brilliant people doing brilliant things. It was the Masters of Scale conference in San Francisco that was so fun. Highly recommend it. Um but when I was VC I mean, that was my day to day was just getting to meet entrepreneurs doing really cool stuff and they're passionate about it. And that is a thing that
1: I miss. I can imagine. Yeah, I can imagine it fills you with a certain kind of energy. It's uh, it's like an extra caffeine, right? <laughs> caffeine times 10. Because <laughs> yeah, index- I always leave these comments like, oh, it's going to be great. <laughs> it feels super nice. Whereas if you watch the news all the time, you just feel worse and worse and worse if you doom scroll. And that's something that we all have to limit. And I've made a very conscious effort to limit the, that kind of news and to instead focus on reading books and uh, thinkers. And a book I'm reading right now is Homo Deus, which you might have heard of a really cool book talking about the future. Although he did entirely miss the uh, COVID pandemic that was written by, uh, you know, 2015. So he there'll said, there'll never be another pandemic again. Whoops. But it's still cool. <laughs> the ideas are still nice. Talking about you know, optimizing for human happiness, optimizing for immortality, all of these big questions that we, we don't have answers to. What will it look like when we're energy independent? What will it look like when humans live to be 150, 200, 250? Is there a ceiling on how long a human can live and, and who will do that? I, I just find these subjects to be the most exciting subjects in general. So I, I get that you're passionate about it. <laughs>
0: Me too. And, you know, you said something that was really important to me in there, which is you mentioned joy and, you know, to go back to where we were earlier in our conversation, we were talking about, um, you know, kind of the fear versus action. That's kind of the two sides, the collective action, the two sides of it, as I see it. Um, I think, you know, it's easy to get, when you get mired in that fear, I think it like robs us of our joy and the the reason that I'm here and the reason that I think you're here and that we, you know, we both want to do the best we can to get ourselves on the positive 50% track and, you know, get, get ourselves over to renewable energy is because we want, like, it's so joyful to be alive. It's so joyful to be alive on this planet. And I, like, I just, I don't want, Myself, I don't want to lose sight of that. And I, I hope that we just collectively as humanity don't lose sight of that, you know, within the framework of the urgency and the fear. And it, it it's all about enabling us to live these joyful lives that, you know, we were born to do. And so I i loved that you mentioned joy for that reason.
1: Yeah, it's deeply exciting. And we're all going to find out. I, I cannot wait to see what the future holds for you and for your company. I know it's going to be incredible. There are going to be some massive partnerships just around the corner, I can tell, and soon this genuinely will be ubiquitous. I'm quite sure of that. You're going to live up to the name. It'll be a self-fulfilling prophecy, no doubt. It's just a matter everyone's of time. Everyone's
0: going know how to spell ubiquitous. What? That's, I said everyone's going to know how to spell ubiquitous. Oh,
1: yes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, that might be the most optimistic claim you've made so far, but of <laughs> all the other things are possible, but that Hopefully. one, I don't know. To be determined, but it's incredible. Your story is incredible. I'm so grateful that you did take the leap and take the plunge and that you've done that and you've committed yourself to this. It's awesome. Keep on going. You're doing a fabulous job. It's super cool. Few things in the world are more cool from my perspective. Uh, we have obviously reached the end of our hour at this point, so if you would like, you can either offer a parting word of wisdom here or you can direct people to any end that you see fit. So take us away.
0: Wow, that's a... That's a, that's a heavy ask. Um, I think my, my best advice to anyone, my, impart, my wisdom I would love to impart is be curious, be optimistic, and get on the path of hope. Uh, there are already a lot of us on it, so come join us. Get on the path of hope and, and be part of the collective action here.
1: What a fabulous way to end it. I can think of no better words, so I won't even try. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. It's been an absolute uh, pleasure. And with that, the official podcast is over.